My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm a member of the growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I'm also autistic. This is our 28th episode of the podcast, Celebrating Excellence in Autism with Greg Connors, our rec coordinator, and Adam Jones, our advisory board member. Uh, what we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we post the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you four autism fans. Our first segment is about the news and updates about the foundation. Tune into episode 27 to listen to our interviews with advisory board member and fundraising mind Connor B. Sturgis and Shelly Hedge, our controller and proud autism mom. They talk about their love for the autism community, how to live a successful lifestyle post high school and living in the moment. I also decided to profile an autism dad and a dad with autism to give two different but similar perspectives. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. So this month is when we will start soliciting Autism Spectrum Award nominations. Because of it, I have also written an overview of the Autism Spectrum Award, the benefits of receiving it, and a call to action for nominations. Now, some of you may be asking about what the Autism Spectrum Award is. Every year since 2015, we have received nominations for individuals with autism who, with their unique strengths and talents, have conveyed virtue and spirit in their lives that impact others. It makes us happy to eventually present the person with the most votes, a trophy, for the Autism Spectrum Award, which we celebrate at the grand finale event held as the greatest ceremony of the year where winners get to meet the Ells family and get to partake in the festivities around the grand finale. Plus, any runner gets an automatic invitation to join our advisory board. Our second interview for the podcast is Adam Jones, who won the 2018 Autism Spectrum Award. If curious, please listen to his interview. And our last uh, news and update is that summer camp is ending Shortly after the recording of the broadcast, our annual summer camp will end. I'm pretty sure that all the campers, staffers, and volunteers have been having so much fun during the interim. One of our guests for our interview segment is Greg Connors. You can tell everyone more about it. As always, it is time to go over today in the world of autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok and his fantastic research-oriented stories. All right. Super excited to deliver these four tales of todayism. So this may seem a little bit of an unusual article for the podcast, but it's, uh, I think you'll see the connection. And first of all, 
Astrocytes are appropriately named star-shaped cells found in the central nervous system that are a member of the glial cell family. And glial cells are these cells that aren't neurons. Um, they don't influence activation within the brain so much, but they provide really important physical and metabolic support to the neurons uh, by the way of insulation as well as aiding in the removal of waste. Up until a few decades ago, scientists thought that glial cells serve virtually no purpose in the brain, but emerging research has shown that they are actually vitally important, especially in you know, the support mechanisms that I just mentioned. So, uh, additionally, astrocytes, they regulate the flow of blood within the brain. They help to fight infection, and they also regulate the synapses or places where neurons communicate chemical messages to each other, also referred to as neurotransmitters. A key mechanism by which astrocytes are implicated in autism could be through the FMR, the, the FMR1 gene and when mice are missing the expression of this gene in astrocyte cells, they show traits that are consistent with fragile X syndrome, which include social difficulties as well as learning problems. So research has also shown that in these mice, decreased expression of GL2-1 in the astrocytes, which is a protein responsible for transporting glutamate out of the synapse could explain why neurons are hyperexcitable in ASD and neuroinflammation commonly occurs. There are other genetic abnormalities, possibly with genes MECP2 and KANK1 that could contribute to the dysfunction of glial cells that's theorized in autism. It seems that impaired function of glial cells particularly astrocytes, could be a major mechanism explaining the hyperactivation of neurons or neuroinflammation in autism. And a common theory with autism is that there's an excessive signal uh, noise occurrence. Okay, so almost as though neurons are firing uh, in a manner that's too rapid and too loud um, for signals to be effectively transmitted. And that's when we say hyperactivation, that is conceptually what you can think of going on in the brain. So like I said, this article is a little more basic neuroscience than what we typically do on the podcast, but I wanted to summarize some of the emerging research on astrocytes because it's one example where when it comes to really figuring out the underlying biology involved with a condition, somehow you have to look a little bit deeper into the equation and you have to look at structural pieces within the brain that aren't usually um, highlighted as much. Uh, in this instance, glial cells are often seen as uh, the little sibling to neurons um, and they're seen as, 
as far less important. But uh, as this research is highlighting, this could be a major mechanism that's involved. And we also know that other conditions involving neuroinflammation, such as encephalitis, Parkinson's, obsessive compulsive disorder, and either in even Alzheimer's have also shown some abnormalities with uh, glial cells, particularly astrocytes. So I wanna highlight one quick thing. When it comes to neuroinflammation, there have been numerous studies showing that dosing of magnesium can actually help to alleviate some of this. And um, there, there is a pretty good literature on magnesium having some positive effects on hyperactive or stereotype behaviors in autism. Um, so I wanted to, to point that out and then bring up the question to you, Merrick, uh, which is, you know, considering the well-established brain-body axis, nutritionists are becoming uh, more and more common, common components of mental health treatment teams. So what are your thoughts on the use of nutritionists for ASD care and management and possibly mental health in general? Well, I think that there are a few things that come into my mind. First of all, it's not everyone who does this, okay? But there are many people with autism who have very rigid or strict uh, diets that they have to adhere to. And then you've got um, in, in which they eat like one thing or they eat a few things on a regular basis, but they don't diverge or they don't divert too much from it, or they have strict and rigid diets based upon what their body can handle. And so because of that, and also because uh, of the known... I guess, idea that, you know, many people with mental health issues may also, as a comorbidity, suffer from problems with eating and drinking, uh, losing weight. Um, I can use myself as a great example. Um, as longtime listeners would know, um, I've had problems with depression, problems with anxiety, problems with OCD, and I also am obese. And one of the reasons why I am obese is because of all of the anxiety, all of the stress, um, everything that just bundles itself up into my body. And it's like, if I want to walk, I have to be in a mood to do it. Like when I would, uh, when I try to take up skiing again, if I was to take up skiing again, I would have to be in the mood to do it or else I would just keep on falling because I would feel just so out of my mindset or so out of a traditional or regular mood. So, yeah, and even if you do walk and the like, it's also about the thoughts that occur while you're walking. You don't want to end up walking for a while and you just think depressing thoughts or your mind wanders into these very dark places. So I think that 
you couple and, and you you have the fact that there are many people with ASD who suffer from mental health comorbidities. Um, and you also have, you know, a rigid diet, whether through necessity or through the way the mind works and the mind functions. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense that there are people who are nutritionists who would serve as part of a team and who would especially be useful on a team of people with ASD because of, you know, a good amount of the things that may surround what is the current mental health state of the person who they're looking towards uh whenever i would feel a sense like i've got to do this big paper i've got to do this small paper but i got to put out a lot of thoughts and my brain works in such a way that i can be just i can put a lot more energy into these like little minuscule thoughts than other people can, and it becomes hyper fixation, hyper focus, whatever, hyper something. And I'm just sort of like, when I burn out, I just go and I go, okay, I'll eat this thing or I'll drink this thing and I'll get my energy from that. Or maybe I'll take a break and I'll eat something. And then it becomes like a habit, it becomes an addiction. Because I feel like with all of the, the stabilities in my mind, this way I can focus and this way I can stabilize the way my mind works. And this way I can, you know, I have very few social, it's, it's, I don't have so many social relationships and I'm not in a relationship that is pleasing to me on another level. And I'll get that kind of relationship through the food I eat. Because if I eat like a chicken tender or something like that, it's very, very easy. I don't have to worry too much about how I'm going to look to the chicken tender, how I'm going to feel to the chicken tender, how I'm going to act, how I'm going to say anything to the chicken tender. Instead, it's there. It's always going to be there. It's not too much money. And I put it in and it gives me the same kind of euphoria I would have through, you know, some deep emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. And I think that if someone is trying to find that deep emotional resonance, not within the social relationships they make, but within the food they eat or the drinks they drink or whatever else, that could be maybe a little bit of a problem. And so I think that all of that can sort of uh, gather into this kind of storm that people with the knowledge and the foresight about how you can make things better for you in terms of your health, but also to, to persuade the person in such a way that it isn't like, yo, fatty. Instead, it's like, 
here are ways you can do it. And I believe in you and I know you can do it. And I know you would be able to get rid of whatever it is that is bringing you down physically as in a nutritionist way. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I think that perhaps um, if it's used more frequently, it may be more effective because um, it, it, uh, when you have a team of people involved in mental health and you have the nutritionist, it may blunt whatever is, whatever could be the hard edged insight of the nutritionist so that the person can perhaps consider the impact of a healthful lifestyle without feeling like they're being bludgeoned uh, to fit into that kind of uh, state of being. Yeah, you, you bring up many good points there. And first off, I, I like the point that you mentioned with autism diet can be a very tricky thing to regulate and moderate. And you also mentioned the comorbidities between autism and things like anxiety and, and depression. And yeah, it's true that uh, when, when your brain is producing a lot of cortisol, um, that it does lead to the craving of, of more and more food um, as kind of a, a mechanism to replenish you know, stress-induced um, absorption of, of resources. Um, but that being said, um, at least in considering, you know, the, the role of nutritionists, uh, they, they uh, it's, my, it's my opinion that they should, be, they should be part of most mental health teams, um, especially when you have a condition, when you have a condition like autism, um, just providing parents with, with useful strategies for helping their child to try different things. Um, that, that may not fully be the role of a nutritionist. That might also be, you know, working with a behavioral therapist to accomplish that. But um, the, the trend, the trend I'm seeing at least is that, you know, as we're learning more and more about how foods impact the neurotransmitters that our brains are producing by way of the gut brain axis. Um, this is, this will be extremely important for, um, for mental health care in the future. Yeah. I'm so grateful that I hate the taste of alcohol, you know, mm -hmm. or else that would have been a very, uh, or else I would tell a very different story today. But I absolutely hate the taste of alcohol. Um, but it's just, it's one of the easier ways that you can basically get the gratification that you may not get from most other things. You know, it's, it's the one thing that can greet you whenever you want to be greeted, that can thank you whenever you want to be thanked. And so it's... Uh, it's definitely, yeah. I, I would definitely say that, that yes, um, it's not, it's, it's a very good sign if 
nutritionists are being seen more, are being noticed more frequently as part of these mental health teams. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you, to your point, you hope that um, someone doesn't become too reliant on any one substance. It's, um, it's, it's all about moderation, both in, you know, consumption of uh, alcohol, of course, and also when it comes to dietary factors. Okay, so shifting gears here entirely from some research on the brain to a discussion on social media use and autism. So Merrick, for better or for worse, social media use is at an all-time high and more and more people are utilizing these apps for socializing with friends and family, both in distal and proximal geographic locations, both near and far. Social media is potentially a great tool for individuals with ASD to connect and build friendships. One of the perspectives that many autistic individuals share is how social media can ease some of the discomforts of in-person interactions where they might feel distressed from efforts to camouflage autistic traits. Several studies have found positive effects of social media use on mental health and quality of friendships with the lack of pressure to mask symptoms serving as a key moderator of these improvements. Despite the potential positives, there are certainly some downfalls to social media use for autism that should be highlighted, as well as downfalls to excessive social media use uh, that should be highlighted for everyone of all ages. First of all, cyberbullying is frequent as is the potential for exposure to predators, especially if someone is overly trusting of new acquaintances. Additionally, when an individual becomes too reliant on social media, it can stunt their ability to socialize in, in person um, and also lead to issues with dopamine production during everyday activities. And there was an excellent book written last year called Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, who's a professor at Harvard University that explores how excessive use of social media can lead to um, dysregulation of dopamine systems within the brain and can make it more difficult to um, feel, feel joy and happiness during everyday activities that may have previously been really enjoyable. So some recommendations to individuals with ASD and neurotypical individuals for social media use would be to avoid the sharing of schedule, location, and travel plans, remembering that every post is written in permanent ink, whether you delete it or not, and avoiding oversharing or disregarding of social boundaries. And lastly, trying to be as clear as possible with communication because messages that are sent in text can often be misconstrued. Merrick, do you have any other tips you would like to share with our listeners or thoughts on social media use in general? Well, I think that this is actually a very interesting article, very 
unusual in a sense too, because it talks about uh, socializing, but in a way that is relevant um, to uh, people with ASD. And in that way also may actually have a very interesting, you know, kind of key moment where it does talk about how in some ways social communication through social media may actually be more helpful to those with ASD. Um, I will have to say, and this is gonna sound really weird, but there was a moment in time in which I did a lot of communication through the internet, not expressly as much through social media, but through uh, message forums, uh, through websites with a significant social outreach. And I ended up making uh, friends that way and not really, there was a time in which my friends or all of my friends are pretty much the people that I met online. And what was very, what would probably astonish many people is that the same people that I would meet online, when I would meet them in person, they would be the same person that I met online. And I actually would hang out. And when I was in California, there was this one person that I would get together with. Um, and then I had another person actually arrive at my door who I had a lot of conversations with and we would talk on the phone and, you know, um, that, that kind of thing is very interesting because a good amount of people say, you know, do not trust that much about what you see, what you read, who you meet online. And, but there was this time in which I found my greatest social connection to be through online mediums and not through real life mediums. But I will say though, that that was years ago. Um, I think that part of the problem is that um, especially of people who, and I've seen this often, people who are just really, um, frustrated with um, the so-called uh, dating scene online. Uh, what I would probably say to anyone who is listening, because I've had it happen to me before, but I didn't necessarily give into it, is that your expectations should not be a straight line. Your expectations online with the people whom you meet or the people whom you speak to is gonna seem a little bit more like a circle. And if you have these expectations that you know the people who you meet or the people who you speak to or the people who you're maybe feeling a little bit hopeful about, you will find um, a lot of things eventually, or you may not e even ever find out a lot of things that will sort of play tricks with your expectations. In real life, while the communication, while the socialization is a lot 
harder to grasp and a lot harder to understand and to manage, it is in a way easier than it would be online because at least in real life, no matter what the person is thinking mentally, you know that that person exists and you know that that person is real. And you know that whoever you'll bump into in real life, you'll know that at least they'll probably be a little bit more truthful in some regards than the person you may meet online. I also will have to say that a lot of people talk about anonymity and how that turns people online into such uh, vicious individuals. Um, I think overall, if you see people in public, you have to realize that the person in public, no matter how much anxiety you have, is probably going to be as nervous as you are. And you won't have that same kind of guarantee online, though it may be good to also think that if you are anxious anywhere you go online too, the other people who, the real people who you may see or who you may meet are going to probably be as nervous as you are too. Maybe not in the same way as in real life, but you shouldn't expect people online or in real life to, to be these, you know, how can I say it? These glistening statues of perfection. These overall know-all buddies of any single thing because everyone has insecurities. Now, another thing that I would probably talk about is, um, is basically, you know, I said before, kind of, what I meant when I talked about my online life for a few years is that you shouldn't have a black or white idea of trust. Some things that you may not think to be trustworthy in, you know, in your mindscape may actually be trustworthy and things that you may think are trustworthy may not be trustworthy. You have to have a lot of discretion and you have to have a lot of, you have to be naive but you also have to be cautious when the time is right. So it takes a lot. It takes, actually, it takes social nuance in a very similar fashion to how you deal with real life. Because you have to go through all the different degrees of knowing that wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you click on, whoever you meet and whoever you talk to, it's all going to be perfect. And that's, this can be very, very difficult sometimes to know how to go through and make it perfect. But yeah. I, I do have to say though, I really, really enjoyed the article. I can relate to it somewhat, but I also believe that, you know, if you, if you are someone with ASD, it's, not going to be it's it's going to be easy in some respects but it, it's uh how far you travel it, it will it has its own set of difficulties and 
then there's the whole thing where on social media, I have seen people get made fun of or get bullied because their symptoms or their traits manifest themselves more than other people who have found probably a way to hide them. And so the, they're looked upon, they're mocked, they're made fun of. You know, I guess what I'd also say is do not be online every single day, the whole entire time. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult. I know that for myself. It's very, very difficult for me too. But if you feel like everything is piling on you, just give it a break. Do not go online and, you know, get into a book or get into a film or get into a video game or something in which your interaction is very, very limited. Because if you keep on hitting that online button, it's just going to make you worse and worse. And yeah. I've had that. I was like uh, 15 or 16 years old I, I or 13. And I joined these online message boards and I didn't really know what to say. I didn't really know what to post or anything like that. So I just gave in to some of my worst elements. And instead of just skiing away from the online bit, I just stood in there for a while and it just made me feel emotionally miserable um, because another thing is that I don't think that at least in my case my sensitivity it doesn't matter whether it's online or in person it's the same exact thing if someone were to have called me a bunch of derogatory names online or someone were to do it in real life it would have had the same kind of feeling to me. So when someone says, oh, it's just an anonymous person or it's just something going on, for me, and I speculate that for many people with ASD, these social conventions that other people are able to create these fortresses about are not fortresses for other people. Yeah. So just it wanted affects- to, yep. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Yeah, it affects people in the same way, um, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. Um, you brought up many good points there. I, I just want to clarify one piece of information that I provided. When it comes to the, the dopamine issue, um, that pertains heavily to some of the newer forms of social media where receiving likes and affirmation is present, you know, they found that that can have an addicting quality to it for people and lead to a lot of issues with, you know, self-esteem as well. If someone is not getting the amount of positive feedback that they feel they should be in their mind. Um, Social media, I have to still say, can be a phenomenal outlet for communication and you know, this, like Merrick was saying, this is pretty interesting point that they actually list a, a couple positives of it, that it can break down some barriers for people with autism. Uh, but you just hope that that's not the only form of communication that's being used, or once friendships uh, are made, that there's some 
you know, level of transfer to um, in-person um, interactions, but of course, in a safe uh, way. Yeah, so. in, this, in this world nowadays, everything is just so oversaturated and unfortunately, many people seem to have it's it's it, there has to be a new sense of perspective in which you just you really do feel like you're a tiny fish in a big pond because of how oversaturated everything is now that everyone has a pretty much a phone. Everyone has a social media platform. YouTube is so popular and everything like that. It's basically, you know. Yeah, and and this expectation of you becoming the newest big thing in such a humongous pond where everyone it's not like you're going to an open mic night at a at a club and there are like 50 people there no on the internet and these social media platforms these giants these behemoths you're basically one person out of like 1 billion or 5 billion people out there right so it's it's just it can be staggering. And unfortunately, that's sort of because it is in some box or some screen or some kind of, you know, little phone or little gadget you can use um, that that works perspective because you think to yourself, you know, I'm in my own little bubble. I'm in my own little domain. But so are six billion other people on the same exact platform you're using. Yeah, that's, that's really true. All right, so. <laughs> Sorry for rambling so much. No, it's all good stuff. Um, well, let's, let's take it back to you now. Uh, I think we, we may have just hit a human interest story, but let's, uh, let's do some more here. Okay. So on the day of the podcast we are currently recording is National Soccer Day. Um, National Football Day was, I think, earlier in the month for people who are celebrating the sport outside of the U.S. Earlier today for our Connections Club program, um, which if you've heard in the interview segments that we have done on uh, segment A or section A, um, uh, our uh, rec coordinator, Greg Connors, said a good amount about this program, which is a very, very valuable program uh, for, our, for us. I highlighted how important soccer is as a sport when I was growing up. It was my favorite. I even was part of a soccer team for a season when I was a lot younger and did surprisingly well. Yes, it should come as no surprise that I'm highlighting a soccer athlete well, in this country, it is called football, who has autism, Well, it came out after he retired from the sport. One of the legendary football clubs, as they are called in the UK, is Manchester United. And in 1992, was a defender by the name of John O'Kane. He ended up playing with some of the biggest names in the sport, but his self-stimulatory behaviors, calm and emotionless demeanor, and his bluntness about the people he played with castigated him so much that he decided to retire at the age of 28. The environment was inflexible or free-flowing for him, instead feeling very awkward for him. Last year, at the age of 45, he wrote a book called Bursting the Bubble, Football, Autism, and Me, which was his memoirs about his time being a professional athlete, 
his background, the way autism impacted him, and what he does now. Ever since he stopped playing soccer professionally, he has worked a variety of menial jobs until he became a caregiver for vulnerable youngsters, including those who are autistic. He really appreciates his current life more than when he was playing soccer professionally. And when he plays soccer, it's a lot more loose and relaxed just the way he likes it. So, Nate, I've asked you probably about one or two other sports uh, that you may have had interactions with. And I'll ask you this time about soccer. How have you felt about soccer? Well, Merrick, it's a, a wonderful story. And, you know, having heard this, I, I really want to rush to the bookstore and, and read this book because I'm sure it's a fascinating perspective on, you know, John O'Kane's life. And especially, you know, I wonder how receptive his, his teammates were to him and what, what those relationships were like. Um, so with soccer, I might disappoint you a bit because I know soccer is, is probably your favorite sport and it's a great sport, but I didn't play a whole lot growing up other than occasionally during PE or recess. And I actually have a negative perspective on soccer because when I was playing college tennis, most of my teammates were from Spain, France, Colombia, countries where soccer is like drinking coffee. It's just a way of, it's, it's a part of the life. And during our off season, we would often play soccer as a fitness exercise. And um, going up against my teammates in soccer uh, was a very frustrating experience. I often got scored on, got the ball stolen, occasionally, you know, landed on my face. And so it wasn't uh, the most enjoyable for me, but I, I really have a lot of respect for the sport. I think it's a true team sport where defense really matters. Ball movement is extremely important. It's difficult to really be a hero in soccer and, you know, have one person doing all the work, but the, the beauty of the game is the movement of the ball and the, the teamwork. So I could see it being another sport that's just uh, could be a very exciting opportunity in a, a recreation sense for therapy and pertaining to autism too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> When it comes to all of the sports and all the physical activities you can do, soccer is one of the few ones in which you really cannot use your hands or any part of your upper body. So you have to use your legs and everything. And, you know, um, it's that's I think that's what kind of makes it so difficult, I think, for some people is that. Yeah. You have to get used to re-engineering or reverse engineering your brain to basically go, okay, so this is a sport. It has goalposts. It has everything that you would imagine for motorsports, but you cannot use your hands. And yeah. so because of that, you know, you're thinking to yourself, well, when am I going to get a stick or when am I going to get, you know, <laughs> even in skiing, you use your hands as a way to make sure you mobilize easily. 
But yeah. in, in this one, you have to keep on kicking a ball and you have to make sure it goes in. I mean, the closest thing is maybe kickball, but even that, you use your hands in such an effective way that you get people out. It's like baseball, pretty much, except your feet are, or your, yeah, your feet are like bats. And so basically that that's kind of, that's kind of why it's a little bit tricky and difficult because, you know, when I was playing, I was surprised at how aggressive it could be, how just, you know, how I thought to myself, okay, it's just a little, it's a fun game of soccer. I'm in a soccer team. We're doing this thing for a season. It's just kicking a ball, but the speed, the aggression, the agility, and yet somehow I was doing pretty well with all of that chaos happening around me. So I, I call it the bourbon street effect because bourbon street is one of the few places in the world that me with my hyper anxiety felt kind of comfortable and at home with, <laughs> with all of its crazy chaos going on there. So what can I say? The same thing happened with hockey for me. That's really funny. <laughs> street effect. I like that. Yeah. It's, it's when, well, I guess in a way it's when you're in a very uh, hectic, chaotic situation but you actually find yourself calm or doing well with it, or you're adapting to it in a way that you would have never thought it would have happened like that. Hmm. So I called the bourbon street effect, I guess. Yeah. There could be some coherence between what's going on in your, your brain or your psyche and then <laughs> the outside environment. Yeah. I guess I thought to myself, people are so, uh, blitzed out of their minds that that basically they don't even really care what it is that I'm doing or they don't really they're they're like the friendliest people around because they're so blitzed out of their minds they don't even care about how angry they are or how irritated they are or anything else they're just here they're gonna be here for like five or six more hours and they're just gonna have a fun time while they're doing it it's certainly hard to stand out as crazy <laughs> yeah it certainly is you'd have to go next level <laughs> really <laughs> okay so um my second story is uh while august is near we've got many days of summer left in fact summer doesn't officially start until late september while we all are waiting for our kids to go back to school i found a very interesting group of chips in the marcus autism center called Maintaining Skills Over the Summer. I would like to highlight a few of them for my second story, even if you end up reading this when your kids come back to school, it, or you listen to this when your kids come back to school, it would be good to bookmark this for future reference. So you, these two sort of combine themselves together a little bit. Uh, one of them is maintain a familiar routine, even while even when traveling, as much as possible, stick to the same meal times and bedtimes you keep during the school year. And also another tip, keep a homework regimen in place. You may use this time to focus on social and emotional skills instead of academic skills. All are all good to make sure that nothing gets thrown out of whack and that these transitional moments will not feel as bumpy. 
Then these two other tips, turn everyday activities like going to the grocery store, helping around the house into learning opportunities. Use these events to teach a new skill or practice one uh, she already has. And help your child learn through play and encourage time outdoors. Play-based activities are crucial to improving skills in every developmental area, which helps the child acclimate to transitions better too by continuing the content of school in a similar vein enough while promoting the change of a summer break. I think that these tips are useful to figuring out how to acclimate your child for either a bit of August or for even next year. Nate, any further tips you want to use? Yeah, this is a, a really good set of tips here. I, I like the, the familiar routine tip, especially one of the most difficult aspects of the transition going back to school for children with with autism but any child is you know getting used to waking up in the morning again at 6 a.m or 7 a.m um and you know it's actually healthier for for our, our bodies and our brains if we kind of stick to um a similar routine throughout our lives and that can include weekends too so you know, try not to deviate too much from the usual uh, bedtime and wake up times. And then I would also say, um, you know, just make sure that children are, are getting outside um, <clears throat> and also practicing new skills. Um, if this, if the day is not filled with five or six hours of, of school, um, then it should still be full of intellectually stimulating uh, activities, whether it's, um, you know, like some of the things they spoke about, play opportunities at, in, you know, running errands or playing outside. Those things are great. Um, if possible, you know, learning new skills like a music instrument or um, learning a new language, perhaps, you know, these are um, great. The summer is a great opportunity for people to take on some of those other um, interests that they might not have time to to look into during the school year. Yeah, and in a weird way, um, when I was a lot younger, um, I went to uh, this overnight summer camp for two years, and the first year I was there, and it felt a good amount like uh, going to school. But it felt like it had the positive traits of going to school, you know, meeting new people, uh, walking around and getting to pick and choose what you wanted to study, what you wanted to learn, how you wanted to participate, how you wanted to uh, grow yourself and develop yourself. And so when I got back to school and I saw the little bit of the positive traits, but I also saw the negative traits. The negative traits of school really stood out for me, which uh, was really, really instrumental in this downhill slide for that whole school year for me, because when I got back and I felt like it was so different in ways that I wasn't really all too thrilled about, and this camp I went to for the very first time highlighted these differentiations I, I felt kind of like, like I was just coming home to disappointment. 
and it, and it made me feel very weird and very odd and like I, like I, I liked the classes I liked the teachers and everything like that but I felt like you know I, I felt more caged in the school than I felt at that camp I went to and so in that weird way what may have happened was was that I was doing a routine kind of like the transition you know going from school to going to a feeling like school but the problem with the transition was that it felt so much more improved over my school days like it, it kind of felt like I was going to college or I was I was getting to see the same people every day we would go to the cafeteria, I would eat, I would drink, and I would have a lot of fun with all my friends there. And then going back to school, I was sort of like, what am I doing here? Where, yeah. where am I? I don't really have that many friends here. And I don't really have like these people I'm going to hang out with. And I'm not going to go to the cafeteria because it's too crazy and too wild and too loud. And it just felt like such a paradigm shift that I just couldn't take it. And that whole thing metastasized over that year. And I think that that was what sort of broke the mold. And unfortunately, not in that much of a positive way for my mental health that year. That's really interesting that you say that, Merrick. And to the story you just told, I would ask the question, is it, do we think it's more of a function that summer camp needs to be regulated differently or is it possible that the school system should be amended slightly well if you were to ask me that i would have to say in some ways i think that school should maybe be a little bit more like a summer camp where it's maybe a little bit more free-flowing i agree and and where you know it's it's not as wild or chaotic i think that it's it's really a question as to whether these more specialty schools like there's a school in in west palm beach called the dreyfus school of the arts i think that they're still around yeah and and they're basically an art school and it's a question as to when i was growing up would i have preferred to be in that kind of school or would I have preferred or, or would I mean, would that have been better for me to be in that school or to be in the school I went to? And there's also the whole thing where everyone is just mushed up into one place and, you know, you don't really, at the camp I went to, you had more of a social life yet. Yes. You bunked around with a lot of other people, but it felt like, you know, it felt like you were less around town and it felt more like you were in the sanctuary or in this kind of environment that felt more conducive to having these closer, smaller, intimate experiences with people who are friends, people who, you know, are overseeing all these different programs and it's just for, for the school system, a lot of it felt like, you know, you just take these classes, you get these credits, 
and you do your homework at home, but you don't really feel, I didn't really feel as much of a connection with the school system as I did with that time, my first year of that overnight summer camp I went to, which is still existing today. My second year was a lot worse, but my first year, I, I really did treasure that because there was a lot of stuff going on. And then I go back to school and the models were so different that I kind of felt like, okay, so I'm not, and, and I wasn't really all too thrilled with the people I was going to school with anymore either. I became more of a advocate for the teachers. I was uh, in classes uh, hearing them discuss and everything like that. And I felt s such a smaller degree of kinship with the people who I was supposed to be peers with. It, it was uh, it was it was a culture shock for me. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, it's it's a good point you make, and yeah, happy we were able to share our opinions on on some of the great aspects of summer camp, and you know, potentially um, alternative models of schooling too that that include a little bit more opportunity for individuals to select what they want to study and also for obtaining, you know, skills outside of just the core school subjects like math, science, and reading. Yeah, there's, there's just a lot of, uh, I guess I can say that there's, that no system is completely perfect, but you know, it's, it's really up to anyone's own interests and up to anyone's own interpretation as to the community that they want to belong to and that they want to live in, you know? So my whole ideal isn't the same as another person's. Um, it was just my own interpretation of what happened for me going to that place and then going back to school, which I used to love so much and I just found it to be so different than what I had thought about before so yeah all right <laughs> sorry about that too oh good good convos today we uh I like I liked our show today I'm a big fan <laughs> unbiased fan okay so um before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any William listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in August with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. Okay, as we do it. Now 
knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high, oh like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high, oh like a butterfly Like a bird, I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor cat will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly Fly. I'm flying through the air so high. 